Third down and goal. Romo protected. You know, one of the things about Christmas is uh, you go from family to family, right? Like, uh, oh yeah, you got to go to to your mom's yep. place and uh, your dad's place, and then you got to go to 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 Mrs. Caster's mom, and right, you know, you you're just going from place to place, and us with our complicated families, right? There's right. just extra layers of that. Yep, you know, it was nice this year. To go from place to place, and uh, I think at each stop there was at least one relative who reached out their hand and said, "Congratulations, buddy! Sports Illustrated, huh?" <laughs> it's like, uh, oh yeah, I I yeah, think we did do that. Yeah, thank th- you. Yeah, that was really cool to be mentioned in that article. I kind of jokingly said on either my Facebook or Twitter. I, I said something nice about Richard Deitch on Twitter, which I'm sure he hated. But uh, I said on Facebook, I kind of joked around, like, it's nice just to be nominated. And I think too many people took that seriously, like we were actually nominated As for something. As if there was a, a... Right, like an award ceremony. That, right. Right. Uh, but no, I mean, we just got, we got an honorable mention. But to be mentioned on that list is the only... Well, here's the thing about it. I, I want to clear up some uh, some... Some uh, mis- misnomers about that. Okay. Uh, first off, I, I think when I told you, you didn't really realize the scope of it initially. No, I think I someone think you, tweeted you or something. Yeah, someone. We were actually we went out to buy a bottle of wine at a winery for my aunt. Okay. So we're like in Niagara County, and I, I get back in the car, and I got like three tweets from listeners. And they have like, wine stores around right around your. Well, house. the well, it was close. Okay, that's you know true. it's yeah, not yeah. far. It wasn't right. far, and uh, we went to this specific one because when uh, the first lady had her her party that your wife couldn't go to because she was pregnant, you know okay, they, okay. they went around the and shower, the, whatever, or not the shower, no, not the but shower. the the fucking not the wow. bachelor party, but whatever the opposite yeah, of that the is. Bachelorette, right? Uh, they went to a specific winery that my aunt just absolutely loved the wine from. Ah, I got you. So we did it. Very That's thoughtful. why we're there. Very thoughtful. Right. So we come out of there, and I got these tweets, and they're like, oh, you know, congratulations. I don't know what they're talking about. So I just went to SI.com, and it was the front page article right. on SI.com, the 2014 Media Awards. And there was one person who said to me, you only got mentioned because you guys have Richard Deitch <laughs> on your show. <laughs> Which, And if you want to make that opinion, that's fine. But I want to just counter it by saying – He's on a lot of shows. Yeah. It's not like he only does our show. His job is to critique the media, and he isn't putting us on that list at the risk of his credibility because he comes on this podcast once in a while. No, and he's very good to us by uh, retweeting us when there's relevant information he deems relevant, but he's also – busted your balls before in the past when you would write to him and say hey we've had such and such on if you want to mention it and he's like no i don't i'm i'm yeah. i didn't know i was your pr department like uh-huh. he, so 
I honestly, I because it was him. My first thought was that's awesome because I know he wouldn't do that. Just he he wouldn't do that just to pump our tires or anything. And you know, it was cool. We work hard on this. We really do. Uh, we don't. It's me and Don. That's it. No one else works on this at all. No, there is not another soul who does one thing on this podcast besides Don and I. And if you look at that list, the BS report was the winner of the award for the best podcast of, of, of the year. And that's a great choice. Yeah. Bill Simmons has had the best sports podcast for as long as I've, I've listened to them. Right. I think he's I think good he's, at it. Yeah. He gets good guests. Uh, he's brilliant at being able to bring his dad and his friends on and have people somehow still care about that. I think he's as synonymous with sports podcasts as his buddy Adam Carolla would be with standard, whatever comedy podcasts. So Dykes lists him as the sports podcast of the year. It's a great choice. And then he said, and these are almost like the, uh, yeah, he described it as honorable mention. I kind of looked at it as I narrowed down a list. This is what I picked as a winner. These are the other ones I considered. Sure. And when you look at that list, it's a Grantland podcast, an ESPN podcast, uh, NFL Network, uh, Rich Eisen's podcast, which is actually now a direct TV um, okay. platform. I mean, all of the other ones. And I loved, I loved how he wrote Independent next to our yeah, name. Yeah, that's awesome. Yep. Because that's what we are. And if you're listening to the first time for the first time, because of that, welcome. Uh, and what you can expect is uh, a blue collar podcast uh, that two guys create in a bedroom in my house. Right. And we've built uh, we've built this podcast on our reputation uh, as being a place where uh, some of the biggest names in media can come. And get a well-researched, honest interview. Uh, we don't we don't bring people on to trap them or to try to buy headlines based on their name. We don't bring a guy like we don't bring Joe Poznanski in and try to embarrass him about our book and hope that someone will pick up on that. We try to get when we had Joe Poznanski on and we asked some questions about that book. Uh, some people picked up on it because they were thoughtful questions that he gave thoughtful answers to. And uh, that's really our goal here is we try uh, really hard to uh, book a good show every week, uh, to give good interviews every week, and in between them, uh, to not ruin it for ourselves. <laughs> for uh, In between the interviews, for uh, for Don and I to, to speak as uh, knowledgeably as we can about the topics at hand in the sports world. And to give our opinions, and also to create uh, a very honest environment and a glimpse into our personal lives, uh, and and hopefully people care enough about us to care about that. And as we sit here today, season five. This is the fifth season and the first episode of the podcast. We started it right around this time, uh, the day after Auburn won the national championship game. That's Cam right. Newton. Uh, I believe they beat Oregon that year, I think. That sounds right. Uh, and uh, Jeff Passan was our first guest. And I'm sure uh, Sports Illustrated was not interested in mentioning us that next day. <laughs> uh, so I think that we've done a lot. We may have done that entirely from a laptop. 
Do we even have the board at that point? I don't even know if we had we the soundboard. We were at a different place. I mean, we weren't even at my house. We were traveling. Okay, because I thought we did like a practice one at your house. And yeah. I thought that might have been it. But It could have been. It's blurry to me. But yeah. uh, anyway, yeah, season five, episode one. It's about January 7, 2015. Season four, episode, uh, season four ended strangely uh, because I got real people sick. Yeah. And we couldn't. I had an interview, which you're going to hear today, with Tom Verducci, canned, in an interview which we're going to do this week or next week with Chris Tone, uh, the uh, managing editor of SI Schedule, and that was going to be our last episode. Uh, but I had to cancel or postpone the Stone interview because I was sick, and then I couldn't talk. Mm. I woke up uh, the day after the worst football party in the history of football parties <laughs> yeah, i got texts about that. and i couldn't talk and i said oh i must have been cheering for the si- oh no there was nothing to cheer about it wasn't that so i don't know what happened it was just i guess part of the virus and uh and then it, it got to christmas so we never really had an official last uh finale or anything like that but our last episode did feature luke win uh one of our best buddies talking college basketball and uh a new guy uh, Corey Mazizak uh, from NHL.com uh, talking about uh, his power rankings column and some NHL stuff there. And you can find that on our website, www.sports-casters.com. And we put all our podcasts there as well as on iTunes and Stitcher. Anything else that can fetch And anything podcasts, else that can yep. fetch them. And if there's some, way we, if there's some way that you'd like to hear it and you can't, uh, let us know and we'll do our best to make it available that way as well. Today, uh, a fluid situation as they tend to be, <laughs> yep. but I can guarantee you that Tom Verducci is going to be on the podcast today. It's an interview that I recorded before Christmas, so there won't be any discussion about the Hall of Fame, uh, which was announced today. It was, yes. Because uh, obviously this was done a few weeks before that. Uh, so that won't be included in the, in, in the interview. It's not that... Uh, I got Verducci on and didn't want to talk to him about the Hall of Fame. It was just that we had previously recorded the interview, uh, which to a large extent focuses on two things. One, him calling his first World Series uh, for television Mm -hmm. with Joe Buck and Harold Reynolds, and also on his article on Madison Bumgarner, who was named the SI Sportsman of the Year this year. And uh, why he chose him, and uh, some things about him. So a really so, nice, yeah. So nothing that has become any more dated. No, this week compared to when it would have. Yeah, it, it canned beautifully. Yeah, it will play uh, just as well. And and it's it's an interview I'm proud of because uh, early in the podcast history, uh, we started to book quite a few SI guys, and a PR person at SI contacted me. And we had a discussion, and he said, you know, uh, you're more than welcome to book anyone at SI. And if you need my help, I'm here. Yep. And I said, oh, okay, there's someone you can help me with. Uh, can you help me get Ferducci? And he laughed. And he said, you know what? He's not going to do it. He's never going to do it. He turns down Francesa. He's just the kind of guy that when his season is going, when he's working, he puts his head down and he goes forward. Well, this is the third time. Verducci's on, and and that's something we're proud of. So you'll hear Tom Verducci. Uh, We're going to have to talk about the book club because I don't know where that stands. Uh, But I do know I have a a really great interview with Al Michaels planned, Hmm. and uh, I hope that that's not going to fall through. 
Uh, I know that – I think that maybe the, the publisher's intention was to sort of promise me the interview and kind of never deliver <laughs> and hope that I went away. What she doesn't know is I'm not going to no- go away and what she also doesn't know is we have a great relationship with John Wertheim who was the ghostwriter of the book. Oh, OK. You know, So I'm re- still really confident that I, that interview is going to happen. But we have to figure out where we're at uh, with books and the book club today. Uh, we just recorded an interview with Dan Wolken from the USA Today. Uh, on the college football playoffs. So we'll talk about that with Dan. And uh, we might mix in an NFL interview. We might not. We'll see. Uh, but we're going to start the show with three things. Let's play a game. All right. Count of three. One. All righty. I'll take it off. Two. The oil patterns on a PBA lane are very, very difficult. Three. I might be able to beat Jamarcus Russell at quarterback. <laughs> This is the funnest night ever. <laughs> Did we just become best friends? Yep. Now let's move on to other business. As soon as the drop started playing, I took my headphones off and looked at Don and said, that wasn't douchey, was it? Yeah, to which I said, <laughs> what part? <laughs> uh, so if, if it was douchey, I'm sorry. We're not douchey. We're just excited. We're usually far, far more self-deprecating than that. Yes. Yeah, we patted ourselves on the back for one minute. Maybe the first time ever. Uh, three things. Uh, you want to start with football? Let's do it. Uh, well, coaches got fired, including yours. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I don't know how much people want to hear me go on about uh, Doug Marone. And it's not old news yet. Actually, it probably would have happened in between last week and this week. But what the biggest shock to me and we've talked about this before in terms of fantasy football or anything really as far as our teams go is i'm shocked at the national reception of this uh it, it seems to have died down a little bit but when it immediately happened it was it was as if this up Vince Lombardi had gotten yeah. fired and was and he's going to be he's going to have his pick of the litter and uh there was one Jets guy that I should credit, and I'll find him while you're talking about something else. But uh, he seemed to be the only guy that saw this for what it was. Marone had a, his a, had a big bit of a big ego, and that's kind of coming out from other sources now. And this guy is a Jets guy that kind of dared to question what has he accomplished? Uh, twenty five and twenty five at Syracuse, and fifteen and seventeen in Buffalo. So essentially nothing. And my biggest problem is, look, I'm not just going to beat the guy up because he's gone. I beat him up. I should do it more on Twitter, but I beat him up every week on Facebook, even when they would win games. I'll vouch for you that you're not a fan. Not a fan at all. Um, None of this is revisionist because he bailed on your team. No. You were right about him. The, The crutch that people are holding for him is his offense was terrible, his quarterback was terrible, and he has no offensive line. That's his side of the ball. It was his decision to put Kyle Orton in. His expertise is offensive line. If if you're not going to blame him for it, then what are you giving him credit for? Because the defense is the reason the team finished 9-7. and seven. I mean, with an asterisk there because New England didn't try. But the defense is the reason they finished 9-7, and seven, not the offense. And that's his side of the ball. That's my major beef about it. Um, I could go into how he mismanages... Uh, Fourth downs, uh, he once punted the ball with like six and a half minutes to go down two scores. I think they had fourth and six. And then when he had to go out on fourth down, it was like fourth and 18. And they happened to convert it too. But it's just, 
an instance of he always seems to be out coached. Um, and his side of the ball just wasn't good enough this year. And you know what? He saw an opportunity to take a free $4 million sure. and get a different job that would pay him some amount of sure. money. And he, he scooted out because and I, it, was, it wasn't, you know, maybe in his mind there's no quarterback there. There's no chance to get a better quarterback. And uh, my reputation is only going to get worse and worse here. So I'll take your $4 million and I'll get the hell out of here. And his ego, I think, told him, I'll go get that job in New York. And I heard today that there's some rumblings that that interview didn't go well. Right. And like people are saying, when do you ever hear that? When is it reported never. an I've interview doesn't that. go well? So how that. bad did he have to botch that interview for it not to go well? And look, I don't – I mean, it's his prior, It's his uh, prerogative if he wants to leave and take $4 million. Yeah, his agent did a great job. Sure. Yeah, negotiated a great deal. But – if part of the knock is he wasn't supported by the media here and he didn't have a quarterback, going to the Jets is the biggest head-scratching part. Although the Jets, I guess, could have a shot at Marietta or somebody else. Right. He had the chance to draft Geno Smith and didn't. So Let me ask you this. In the past, when the Bills were searching for a coach, there were some limitations there. You knew that there was only a certain amount the Bills were going to be willing to pay. Sure. That doesn't exist anymore. So, if you can convince the guy to come here, you can literally hire anyone. Right. If you were empowered to hire anyone and they couldn't turn you down, who would you bring in? My first reaction when I heard Mike Shanahan was no thank you, but I like what he did with RG3. And if I'm going to have to go forward this next year with EJ Manuel, then maybe that's a guy I'd the want. The scary thing I heard was that Shanahan would come in as like a, a football czar, quote and unquote, his and his son would be the coach. I yeah. don't think you want any part of that. I yeah, don't think. yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't know enough about his son. Um, they, Do you like the idea of Frank Reich? Yeah, except for he's essentially had a cup of coffee in the NFL at this point. Uh, he hasn't been there Done very long. Done a great long. job with Phillip Rivers, though. Sure. Whose yeah. career looked somewhat dead. Right, yeah. Any fantasy player would recognize that. And he um, was a, he had an MVP-type year. That he's not going to win it, but... Sure. Yeah. Look, it'd be a popular move. I think it would be a move that would be easy for some fans to see as a pandering to the fans move like when step they step in the past yeah they've done that enough so i mean i'm hoping if they pick him it's because they really want him and believe in him not because they want to appease anybody um in certain guys names adam gase i think his name is the offensive coordinator for the broncos guys like that scare me because how how much well you don't the know offensive if coordinator for the broncos you do don't know if you're Peyton getting Manning? if you're getting sean payton or mike mccarthy or if you're getting just a, some other a coordinator who just didn't work out. Yeah, I heard. I wasn't here for the interview, but I heard you when I was walking in talking about the Oregon Ducks coach. Like, is he just a benefit of beneficiary? Of Kelly, of the, right, right. Um, and that would be my fear there. What I do like is the guy's thirty six. I mean, that's essentially hiring me in a couple of years. So I would hope he's I progressive. Heard they might. That, oh, that'd be great. Uh, yeah. No, not for them so much, but for <laughs> me. Uh, I would. When Doug Marone got hired, I thought he was chip kelly light like that was kind of the thing he's super innovative and he turned out to be totally conservative what i want is it's easy to go back and poke holes in the trade for sammy watkins but it's not because of anything sammy watkins has done he's been super talented he's looked good on the field he's just been super underused 
I want a guy that's going to get thrown the ball all the time like Odell Beckham Jr. was throwing the ball all the time. I want a guy that's going to open up the offense and isn't afraid to throw a pick or two. Uh, so whatever is the opposite of Doug Marone at this point, I want someone that's not at all conservative. Rex Ryan would be fun, but I don't I don't see how you can bring in a defensive guy with Schwartz right. there already. So just give me someone. Would you give Schwartz a try? Yeah, I don't see why not. I, I don't know. I mean, deserves an interview, right? Sure, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And just you're still going to bring in a guy for the offense that's got to totally revamp that offense. I mean, you're not going to get a name like Shanahan then if Schwartz right. is your head coach, but I'm fine with that. So there's five jobs out there, and and presumably someone's going to hire someone, and uh, and then they're going to start to fill in quick. So it's Buffalo, Chicago, Atlanta, the Jets, and San Francisco. By, by the way, I think the Jets made a massive mistake firing Rex Ryan. I know he's a cartoon character, but I thought he was a good coach that players play for. And his GM did a horrible, horrible job in the draft, uh, bringing players in. Just a terrible job, and Rex Ryan kind of faced the brunt of that. Now maybe he's, They're one of the least talented teams on offense in the entire league, his yeah. entire time there. Not his side of the ball, I guess. Yeah. But... Uh, Real quick, yeah. your team, Yes, is Rob Ryan going to be spared? He might, and here's why. And this is bizarre to me, but I guess Sean Payton is a little self-conscious about how many defensive coordinators they've had already under him. Okay. And the belief might be that uh, they didn't have any players on that side of the ball. Which seems that- a little crazy, doesn't it? A little bit. I mean, they're not totally lack devoid of talent. I would have fired him Monday. That corner that you're always talking I mean, Keenan about. Keenan Lewis was the MVP of the team. They had Jarris Bird. I mean, not for long. Jarris Bird, I think, played four games. Yeah, I mean, they're not totally untalented. I think I was surprised to hear that. It sounds like he's going to make it. They promoted somebody, right, for personnel. Yeah, I uh, I would have. They've fired already fired a lot of his staff. Okay. You know, linebackers coaches, secondary coach got fired. Uh, one guy left to, to take a similar role at Vanderbilt. Okay. Uh, so there's certainly going to be changes that just might not get that high. Uh, they're they're nuts. He should uh, be fired. All right. Yeah. And if you hopped on the first, if this is your first podcast from the Sports Illustrated. We're a podcast out of Buffalo. I'm a Bills fan. Steve's a Saints fan. So if you're going to stick around, you you're going to that's. Our local teams, I guess. Yeah, we talk about them occasionally. Yep. Uh, anything else about the Bills or the Saints that you think we need to talk about now, knowing we have a lot of other stuff to talk about? No. All right. Let's move on. Uh, oh, one other thing I would say about the coaches. San Francisco has no chance to hire a guy as good as the guy they had. And That was a weird, the weirdest divorce in football. I have no idea what happened there. But they let go of a coach, took them to a Super Bowl. Uh, his record's ridiculous. Two other I, NFC I, Championship I, games and missed the playoffs once in his four years. Yeah. Four years, three of them he went to at least the NFC Championship game. So I don't know what went on there. He must be a really unsufferable human being to be around, I guess. I get, I mean, he took the exact same roster essentially that uh, – oh, boy, I'm forgetting that the linebacker that coached the team before him had – Singletary? Singletary. Yeah. It made them very good. Uh and like I said, his reference or his record was ridiculous while he was there. Wildcard weekend. 
Yeah. Uh, boy, that wasn't that good. No, it wasn't. I mean, I didn't catch a whole lot of it uh, for one reason or another. The only good game I thought was the Sunday night game. I kept hoping kind of the Steelers would come back. I'm not a Steelers fan, but, I mean, they're a fun team. Well, we knew Saturday's offense. game will be bad uh, Saturday afternoon. I mean, you have a I, – I feel bad for ESPN. They spent a couple hundred million dollars to get back in and host a, and, uh, and televise a playoff game, and they get the Carolina Panthers seven wins hosting the 11-win Cardinals team who has their third-string quarterback. Yeah. Welcome to the playoffs, ESPN. And it was raining. It looked miserable. It was played fairly miserable. And the Panthers, as a seven-win team, did everything they could in the first half of that game. Uh, to they actually went into halftime trailing. They did everything they could to to keep Arizona in that game, and uh, and ended up ended up getting the win. Uh, they're going to go to Seattle. We'll talk more about that game later. Uh, the nightcap was the Ravens and the Steelers, and uh, the other Harbaugh, John, John, six times in the playoffs, he's won at least one game in those playoffs every time. Yeah, and I was going to say something about this Baltimore game. I there are things I am stubborn on. One of them was this year was the Eagles' defense not being as good as maybe fantasy would suggest, or as their record would suggest. That, I think, turned out to be somewhat accurate. The one thing I think I've always been wrong on, and I've seen him play enough, is I think I think I might have to admit, finally, that uh, Joe Flacco might be borderline elite. Like, right below that. I saw... Whatever he is, he is extremely bizarre. He can go... He can play a game one week where he's the best in the league and you think he's worth every penny... And then he can play another game where you think he's what you'd want. He's a guy that he's a gamer. gets better in the playoffs. He's a gamer, and I've seen Aaron Schatz uh, does all the analytics type stats. And uh, someone asked him today on Twitter, "Is clutch a stat you can measure?" Measure, and he said, I'm "No." Sure he said, "No." He said, "No." Clutch. He's right. like, you can't use it to predict future outcomes, but he says it is a good. He says he does believe in it when it comes to putting a guy in the Hall of Fame. Like looking back, he likes it as a thing. Now, not having Le'Veon Bell is a huge factor. In well, this sure, game yeah, for, absolutely for Pittsburgh. They're, they they their leading rusher in the game had twenty five yards, Ugh. and don't forget Le'Veon Bell had eighty catches. Yeah, you know, so that's a huge, huge, huge uh, piece not in there. Uh, interesting. What did you think of the Roethlisberger's injury? Did you see this? No, I heard about it, though. So he goes out, concussion. They kind of dodged the concussion protocol by saying it was a neck Whiplash. injury. Yep. So do we take them at their word that it was a neck injury, or are we calling bullshit? I don't believe it necessarily. Didn't this same a similar thing happen to Jason Witten not so long ago? They called the injury upper body, and then it became neck. But like at some point, they took his helmet. So I... I don't buy that at all, and it, it it's it, it's pretty sour uh, coming from a league that is paying out all these. Uh, well, the league can say all they want that all they care about is player safety, and we can know it's bullshit. Yeah, yeah, I, that that's great. I would love to see what uh, 
Damashek. We got to have Dave on one of these weeks soon. I'm trying. I try. Oh, okay. Because uh, if you don't know who Dave Damashek is, he's a Pittsburgh guy, but he works for the NFL Network. If, if you're a football fan, you know who Dave Damashek is. But uh, he works exactly because of what I just laid out. He's a Pittsburgh guy, but he works for the NFL. I'm curious what his take would be on that. Uh, Andrew Luck, 31 for 44, 376 yards and one touchdown, which was one of the best He's phenomenal. passes I've ever seen in my life. If you remember the play where he kind of got flushed out of the pocket and ran to the right of our screens, got right yeah. to the line, dropped it in a bucket, and dropped yeah. it on a dime. Yeah, uh, He's amazing. And uh, Andy Dalton isn't quite as good as him <laughs> in no, playoff games. Speaking of coaches, how does Marvin Lewis – have that job still here's how they were the worst team in football for years and years and years and just to make until it he got there and since he's been there they make it every year every year he's zero and six and right that's now. such a huge difference though you know what i mean like if you're if you if you get hired by the steelers and you can't win a playoff game you're probably going to get fired but if you bring in the standard uh with the bengals is so much lower i think yeah, you know, just the idea that he can get them there year after year, and I think he might get a pass uh, when you realize that the quarterback he's got, that redheaded kid, uh, is just miserable in every single playoff game. I saw an article that said Excuse this me. might have been before or after we finished or wrapped up season four. So I hope I'm not bringing up something twice. But uh, someone had an article that essentially broke down that Andy Dalton is like the Mendoza line. If you have a quarterback better than Andy Dalton, you're probably good at quarterback. And if your quarterback is not as good as Andy Dalton, you're, you're not okay at yeah. quarterback. I like that. And that's exactly, I mean, he's a guy that will get you there and get you no further, it seems like. The game of the weekend was obviously Dallas and uh, Detroit. We played the highlight off the top there. Well, this game is, no matter what, it's about one thing. And it was bizarre, I'll say that. Uh, obviously, everyone knows there was a uh, pass interference Flag thrown. Uh, pass interference as a penalty was announced by the official. And then the flag was picked up. And the call was changed. And I've never seen it that late. I've never once heard no. an official announce a penalty and then them pick the flag up. The Bills earlier this season had a holding call picked up a holding call against them to which the defense said to say that has never happened in all my years of playing Matthew Stafford was mic'd up in this game and asked the ref he's like this has never ever happened like and as bad as that I was pretty aggravated that the officials let Des Bryant run around like a clown on the field arguing the call with his helmet off now they did say that doesn't matter it's only a penalty to take your helmet off okay you know while you're on the field that it's not necessarily a penalty I thought that too, but so if you're on the field, take your helmet off. That's when you're in trouble. Yeah, but uh, don't let Des Bryant act like that. That that absolutely should have been a penalty. Yeah, and then at worst, I don't know. I feel bad for Detroit. Detroit fans are mad, and and they deserve to be mad. I agree. I'd still like them to go out and try to win that game. That gave them fourth and one, and they went out there. And tried to draw them off sides. Have a little, have a little balls there. You're Detroit. Yep, I said that on Twitter. I was t- tweeting for pro player insiders. Uh, one team was aggressive to win, and one team was, you know, trying not to lose. I mean, Dallas. Not that it was a bad call, but I there's like what was an 85 yard Terrence Williams touchdown. 
That was right after a nice Terrence William or Des Bryant, I can't remember who, played to get a first down on the play before that. That was called back on a penalty. I mean, they could have just called something super conservative. They didn't. Detroit kicked the field goal with 8 minutes and 41 seconds left in the third quarter to go up 20-7, to and they didn't score another point rest of the game. Yikes. They didn't do anything in the second half. That's the other thing I was going to say. The big reason why they lost the game. About this game. Um, as a Buffalo fan, I know this is blasphemous, but I don't hate Dallas. That was too long ago, and they were a good team, and it wasn't like an ugly rivalry other than losing to him twice in the Super Bowl. But uh, I kind of pull for Tony Romo, and I think he gets hammered a little bit too hard, and I think Matthew Stafford doesn't get beat up quite enough. He is – I mean, the stats have been trickling out the last few years, and they're starting to get loud and really noticeable that he's won like two games against winning teams like in his career. So, yeah, he's he's got to be better than that. Uh, last thing about this game: Do you have a problem with Chris Christie cheering for the Cowboys? I, I don't. I don't either. I'm I'm just not that person that cares. In Buffalo, I know it's a small town. People here are real into that type of thing. It doesn't bother me. I, I if Bon Jovi was governor, cheering for the Bills, would it be weird next he's season? He's the governor Maybe, of New but... Jersey, too, not the governor of New York. I mean, I know They're that... They're a rival. I know that uh, the Giants and the Jets technically play in New Jersey. Right. Uh, but um, I don't know. He wasn't cheering against his constituents. The Giants nor the Jets were involved in the game. He's a lifelong Cowboys fan. I have absolutely no problem with it. Music's over and we still got a lot to go, so we got to move on. We'll talk about next week's games in the final segment of the show. All right, let's do it quick. We'll pick them. Uh, the college football playoffs. We're going to talk more about this with Dan Wilkins, so we'll do this really fast. Uh, I left it in here because I wanted to ask you two things. Did you watch either of the games in the semifinals, and will you watch any of the national championship game? No, I mean, this is a regular segment of ours, too, where I get embarrassed about my limited sports knowledge, but I did not see either of the games. I do believe I will watch the national championship game. I do tend. What did you do instead? Just curious. What day were they on? Uh, they were on New Year's Day. Probably just family stuff. Or the wife. Oh, I've got a two-month-old. The wife was getting ready to go back, back to, to work. Yeah. So it might have just been crap around the house type stuff. Uh, nothing good. <laughs> nothing good. All right, but you do plan on uh, watching some of the national championship games. I do tend to watch the national championship games, yes, which more often than my college football knowledge would suggest. Uh, The Major League Baseball announced uh, the Hall of Fame class today, and none of the steroid guys got in. Which is a joke. Um, Craig Biggio finally got in. Who's I read... uh, I think he missed it by one vote last year. I read a great great stat that from... uh, just some person that was that tweeted at somebody I follow. And they said something like, well, you can't keep the guy with the 529th best all-time batting average out of the Hall of Fame. <laughs> but uh, Roger Clemens, yeah, should never be in there. Uh, Randy Johnson, Pedro Martinez, John Smoltz, and Craig Baggio made it. Mike Piazza is up to 70%. He's going to get in. How did Pedro Martinez not get 100% of the votes? Uh, well, Greg Maddox didn't. Who votes on this stuff? Baseball Writers Association of America. They are the most curmudgeonly. I mean, they nobody they gonna, makes it about themselves more than the Baseball Writers of America. Are they going to petition the league to uh, take wins away from these steroids? Like, 
some of these guys were never even caught doing steroids. Uh, well, maybe this entire list was. But uh, you need to get 412 votes or 75 percent of the 549 ballots cast. Randy Johnson got the most votes with 534. So 49 people did not think Pedro Martinez was a first ballot Hall of Famer. Now, part of it is you can only vote for 10 guys. Yeah. Um, but okay, which I, is silly. This is when I happened to play fantasy baseball a little bit. In the, if anyone remembers, uh, what was it called? Sand, Sandlot? Sandbox? What the hell? Small something. Small box? Sandbox? I can't remember what it was called. It was some sort of uh, salary cap baseball league that I had fun with. Uh, Pedro Martinez was the best pitcher in baseball for like five years. It oh, yeah. He's, totally one, of the, he's one of the best of all time. Dave Damashek had the best quote about this. It's not necessarily about Pedro, but he's on Twitter wrote, quote, is blank a Hall of Famer? Sure, but just not a first ballot Hall of Famer. And then he wrote, pipe down, nerd. <laughs> uh, Kurt Schilling, 32%. Roger Clemens, 37%. 37%. Barry Bonds, 36%. Or 202 of 549. So... The Baseball Writers Association of America has essentially said to Roger Clemens and Barry Bonds, over our dead bodies. Yeah, and when I when I thought – I knew we would talk about this today. So when I was thinking about it at work, I thought this is probably something that in the past – maybe I'm flip-flopping on this. There might be someone out there that pays close enough attention to this podcast. They can tell me in season one I was really against steroid users or whatever. I'm still against steroid users, but until baseball takes like a real stance against it uh, – and unless they're going to go back to that period of time and just take all the record books away and take away all the championship trophies and all that, then it happened. You know what I mean? Like these guys hit the most home runs that year. Roger Clemens struck out the most people that are close to or whatever. I, I think it's a joke to just pretend it doesn't exist because you're a holier than thou uh, sports writer that didn't, that someone rubbed you the wrong way back then. A couple more things I want to get through quick. Uh, The World Junior Championships, the Under-20 Hockey Championships, ended last night in Toronto. Canada defeated Russia 5-4 to to win their first gold medal since 2009, uh, which is unbelievable that it's been that long. It's their first medal of any kind. And while there was two years previous to this that they didn't win any medal at all, uh, they get the gold this year. Uh, The tournament was largely about going in. Connor McDavid versus Jack Eichel, the guys who will be the first, the first and second, and second pick, yeah. pick of the uh, NHL draft this year. Uh, but when it, it turned out uh, that Eichel and the U.S. were eliminated by the Russians in the quarterfinals in a game that the U.S. dominated, unfortunately took too many penalties and couldn't get that third goal in the third period where they outshot the Russians 25-4. to four. Um, And that happens in single elimination hockey. Uh, So Eichel didn't get deep enough to really have an effect on the tournament. But I've seen every game he played, and i got to say, he didn't rise to the level as, say, Pat Kane did when Pat Kane played in this tournament and turned himself into a guy who was going to be drafted in the first round into a guy who was drafted first overall. Uh, He didn't do that. Um, If you're looking for the best uh, player on the American team, uh, it was... Uh, Larkin, who plays at the University of Michigan, or Sonny Milano, who is a guy I'm not a big fan of because of the way he bailed on Boston College for a white envelope to go play in the OHL. But you know what? Uh, that's, uh, okay. that's a discussion for another time. Uh, as for 
McDavid, you remember how young he is when you look at him with the A in his chest and the full face shield on. Still 17 years old, and he scored some scored some beautiful goals and had some beautiful moments, but you know what? That was a Canada team that was really led by the number two pick in last year's draft, uh, which should make everyone in Buffalo happy. Uh, Sammy Reinhardt uh, was great. Uh, Ty Domi's son was great. Uh, and their line dominated the tournament and is the reason uh, Canada won gold. Uh, despite some really tough, tough, uh, tough squeeze-your-butt-cheeks-real-tight moments last <laughs> night in that third period. Yeah. Uh, when for the first time ever in my years watching that tournament, the referees really did uh, swallow their whistles, and Canada held on for jail life, and it worked. So uh, good for them, I suppose. Yeah, it's. I mean, it's one of them things. It means more to them if they lose or if they win. There's no country th- in the world that this tournament means as much to as Canada. Sure. And they, not, not one in the world. Right. They come out and they support their team. And those tickets I heard were going from, for like five thousand dollars Which is interesting because they couldn't sell out U.S. and uh, Canada on New Year's Eve. Really? Yeah, I guess, uh, you know, they held the tickets hostage and... Montreal, where you had to buy every game there to get a ticket to that. Oh, okay. You know, and that only got them so far. And then when they opened them up, eh, people said, ah, save my money and see what happens. Maybe I'll go to the gold medal (laughs) game instead. And the gold medal game was in Toronto, which is a different city than Montreal. And maybe there's a little bit more money, that corporate money. Yep. Uh, Two last things. Uh, And this one's real quick. UFC. Uh, John Bones Jones beat uh, Dan Cormier. Okay. Uh, in one of their biggest fights in a long time, I watched it. I won't say I bought it, but I did watch it. <laughs> is he still? Is John Bone Jones undefeated still? I think he's lost one time. Yeah, he's a bad dude. Yeah, whoo. Uh, he. Uh, my understanding is that uh, Cormier had never been knocked down inside the octagon, and he did it three or four times. Wow, uh, it was a very impressive victory. And uh, UFC is one of those things that one of these times we got a great boxing guy, you know we got that Michael, you know Michael Woods. Remember when we have him on when we talk boxing? Sure. He's from Brooklyn. He's like the greatest yeah, guy yeah. to talk boxing. Yeah. We need a UFC guy because uh, uh, that was interesting to me, and I wonder uh, what else they might have. And uh, maybe we'll talk. Let, let us know if you want us to talk a little bit more about UFC on the podcast because we virtually. Not talked about it at all. This is true. Last thing. Uh, yesterday, uh, Stuart Scott passed away. Yeah, yeah. And um, I'm at the age where when I was in high school, uh, my TV woke me up. It turned on at 7 o'clock every day, and Sports Center was on. And I don't know if Stuart Scott was on at that hour or not, if it was other times that I watched Stuart, but... He was one of the guys with Eisen who's been on this show and and other guys that are synonymous with uh, that show. Kilborn. Just, you know, yeah. guys that they did it in a different way that we had ever heard before and they killed it. And I was talking to my brother about this today and we were like, yeah, you know, it's, uh, it's really sad that, that he passed away. And I said, you know, I hope that I don't know if there's heaven or not or what your beliefs are about what happens when we die. But I hope for his sake he is in a in a position where he can look down or up or sideways and see how many lives he touched. Because the outpouring on yeah. Twitter and Facebook 
and ESPN and the NFL Network and anywhere you turned yesterday, uh, people using his catchphrases and uh, the tweets and all that is overwhelming. And uh, I did say to my brother, you know, well, Stuart might be able, might not be able to see all this stuff, but his daughters can, and and uh, they probably need it the most right now, and they certainly uh, should be really proud of their dad because he uh, he left a huge mark, and that cancer's a motherfucker, I'll tell you that much. And um, uh, he was a brave guy, and uh, rest in peace, Stuart. Our next guest is from East Orange, New Jersey, and is a graduate of Penn State. In 1993, he joined Sports Illustrated, where today he is a senior writer and one of the magazine's top baseball writers. He is also, at this point, still, over 20 years later, one of the best baseball writers in America and just finished broadcasting his first World Series for Fox. He's making his third appearance on the Sportscasters today. A warm welcome to Tom Verducci. How are you doing today, Mr. Verducci? Good. Thanks for having me. I thank you so much for being on the podcast. It's a, a great sense of pride for us every time you come on. Thank you. Uh, so much I want to talk to you about. The first thing I want to ask you, just real quick, as an aside, have you been to the the Pagula Ice Arena on the campus of Penn State since it debuted a few years ago? I have not. It's too hard to get tickets. Yeah, here it's <laughs> uh, sold no, out heard, every time. Heard great things about it, but I have not been able to uh, actually see a game there yet. Yeah, it's got it's definitely an exciting thing that uh, Penn State's got a D1 hockey program, that's for sure. And Arizona State has uh, got a hockey program. We just need to get one in the state of Illinois. But D1 hockey is a great thing for your college, and I'm sure uh, everyone at Penn State is, is glad that that's there at the very least. So, um, well, like I said, thanks for being back. We really appreciate it. Uh, it's been a bit since we talked to you. I have uh, January 2012, and there's been a lot, obviously, that's gone on since then. Uh, first thing I want to talk about is Sportsman of the Year, though. Uh, we do this every year with whoever is the author of it. And last year, I remember one of the big things was wasn't the most popular choice. And it seemed like when you got other people, like, you know, okay, I don't like this choice. I would have picked. It, it seemed like it was a, be- a baseball person, whether it was uh, Ortiz or uh, Rivera were a lot of the names last year that I heard. Um, I haven't heard as much of that at all this year, and obviously part of that's because Madison Baumgartner is such a great choice for this. But I was thinking about it a little bit and wondering, uh, Sportsman of the Year in Sports Illustrated, it, it's very Americana, as is the uh, as is the um, baseball itself. And, and I wonder if, if, uh, if maybe people get upset, if, if there's some kind of connection there. Maybe I'm reading too much into it, but I feel like maybe subconsciously – uh, we have this connection, like uh, it feels a little bit better when it's a baseball person. Yeah, I think there's some truth to that. I mean, it's I, I bias, of course, but I think no sport has the kind of history that baseball does, especially attached to American history. Um, especially, I think of Jackie Robinson and really think about the civil rights movement and and really go back to Jackie Robinson kind of kick-starting that in 1947 uh, to make it believe it be possible that we would have a fully integrated society. It happened on the baseball field first. I also think there's something to the fact that just the, the way baseball begins 
uh, in the springtime, takes us through the summer, ending in the fall. Uh, and then when you start thinking about, well, that's sort of the end of the year and wrap things up, the end of the summer, fall turning to winter. So the, the season itself fully embedded within the calendar year, the baseball season, uh, you know, it's still fresh in our minds about how the season just ended. In this case, the World Series and especially Game 7, uh, that'll be fresh in a lot of people's minds for a long time because it was so memorable. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's it's a really interesting tie-in here when you think about Madison Bumgarner. He won this based on what he did during the World Series, and it also coincided with your first time broadcasting the World Series in the booth for Fox on television, and then you author the article. Just a really interesting uh, uh, synergy there with all of those things coming together. What did it? What I want to ask you and Put put ego aside. Don't don't worry about it. But did it did it make it a little bit more special for your first World Series to contain something that we'll talk about for hundreds of years? A really historic event. It wasn't a four nothing pound. It wasn't you know like the '98 uh, Yankees and Padres. I, I, have, I have no idea what I think about when I think of that series. Did it? Does it mean something to you to have broadcast one that? Uh, includes it's it went seven games it was the return of the royals and it has this performance in all of that that we will talk about in baseball for forever oh absolutely you know i can remember going to the ballpark that day and i think i even said it on the air pregame is that we're going to see something historic tonight and you can say that with confidence because that's what Game 7 does. And Game 7 is the best day in all of sports. Uh, there's no doubt about it. You get more than 2,400 games distilled down to one game. And in this case, it actually came down to one pitch. When you talk about one pitch, the Giants either win the World Series or the Royals tie the game, or if it's a home run, the Royals win the World Series. Everything down to one pitch. I mean, I certainly didn't see that coming. Uh, but in terms of what Game 7 gives us, yeah, I was certainly pumped about it. Um, you know, and, and it was very cool, especially, you know, I've known we only saw one Game 7 in the previous 11 years. Uh, that had never happened before in the history of the World Series dating back to its start in 1903. So I, I know how rare it's just a Game 7 alone is. So to have a Game 7 in the first World Series that I did in the booth, uh, that alone was a real treat. I knew it going in, and, and obviously walking out of it, it was even better than I could have imagined it being. Can you take us uh, through a little bit the play in the ninth inning? What it looked like from the booth, your unique perspective being there, uh, what sticks out? Obviously, we've seen science uh, break down. You know, If they would have sensed him, he would have been out by such an embarrassing length and you know things like that. But what about the play sticks out? Did you notice he didn't? necessarily hustle out of the box right away what was your feeling initially when when they held him at third when the when the guys are kicking it around the stadium everything going around what was your perspective of all of that uh from the booth yeah well i was watching the ball mostly and uh first of all i couldn't believe uh that the center fielder kind of pulls up late on the ball blanco and allows it to get by him you're specifically playing a no doubles defense to concede singles and keep the tying run out of scoring position. It's uh, 
It'd be the equivalent of an NFL game where you're playing a prevent defense and somehow you let the receiver get behind you. Uh, so I was shocked to see the ball get by him. Uh, and then watching the left fielder bobble the ball like it was, you know, hot cookies that just came out of the oven where he touched it and dropped it, touched it and dropped it. At that point, that's when I thought there was a possibility that Gordon would score. I never thought about that as the ball got by Blanco. But as Perez bobbles the ball in the outfield, I remember thinking, if he doesn't pick that thing up with his next attempt to pick it up, he might score the tying run. Right. Um, so I, I did not see Gordon out of the box at that point. I was watching the ball, but you know, looking back at the various replays and the angles on the play, uh, there's no way Jersey could have sent Gordon to the plate to attempt to score the run because at that point, it didn't take a good throw to get Gordon at the plate. It took any kind of a throw, anything other than the worst throw in the world. In other words, the throw can be from Crawford can be slightly off target left or right, and Posey still has time to catch and tag and get the runner out. So I just didn't see the possibility, as good as Bumgarner was, of saying, you know what, we're going to let the World Series ride on sending the runner to the plate, hoping that we get a wild throw that eludes the catcher. (laughs) Uh, You can't end the World Series that way. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, the wild throw. So, right. uh, to me, you can't you can't take that chance. And I know the odds of getting a hit off Bumgarner based off the way he pitched the postseason were not good. Um, but I thought it was better to give Perez a shot to take the swing. Yeah, and I mean, it, it wouldn't have had it been a spectacular hit. Like, the one that uh, Gonzalez won the World Series on would have been good enough. You know, there was nothing spectacular about that hit. It's not like Rivera made a made a, a, a meatball pitch or anything there. You know what I mean? So, I, I totally agree, obviously. It's just interesting perspective to get your vibe from inside the stadium and, wh- and what it was like at those moments. And let's tie this back to Bumgarner. Well, I remember for that, yeah. I remember for that last at bat standing up in the booth and, you know, because you knew you were watching something historic. It was almost, you know, you stand when you hear the national anthem. You, you stand in church. You know, you stand when a funeral procession goes by. And you stand when the World Series comes down to one confrontation between batter and pitcher. I just remember standing up and saying, okay, here it is. At that point, I became as much of a fan as anybody else, just totally invested in what is going to happen next. Do you remember what your first SI cover was? Uh, Yeah, it was actually the first story that I wrote for the magazine. It was about Dwight Gooden in 1993, spring training with the New York Mets. Interesting. I was just curious... uh historically where that you know I, I was just curious i did i didn't know i it wasn't like trying to quiz you or anything i was just curious because uh, as you were thinking about this I, I can't get over personally just you know the uh i can't get over the thought of this being your first world series and just having this historic thing and that gets back to kind of writing the piece about madison and what did what did you learn uh, what excited you most uh when you're putting all this together beyond the performance in the world series and ultimately naming him uh, sportsman of the year. What about working on this uh, really brought out your uh, journalistic juices, if that's such a thing? Well, typically, when you do a sportsman of the year, and I think this is the fifth one that I've done, you're typically writing about a very well-known quantity. You know, whether it's Derek Jeter in 09, uh, McGuire and Sosa in 98, Schilling and Johnson in 2001. Um, you know, this is the kind of idea that you don't think about, because to me, Bumgardner 
being a sportsman of the year in a major sport was still something of an unknown quantity as far as who he is. Uh, and I really relished that opportunity to kind of let people know who he is. And I thought the best way to do that, knowing what I knew about Bumgarner at that point, was to really connect him to where he's from. Um, because I think all of us, no matter where we're from, no matter where we go, how many places we move, we always carry home inside of us. But Bumgarner's case, uh, he carries it as proudly and as openly as anybody I've known in baseball. In other words, he's so much a product of where he's from, both the area geographically in North Carolina and his family, and they're all still in that area, uh, that the story of Bumgarner can't be separated from the story of uh, the foothills, the Blue Ridge foothills in North Carolina. So I really wanted to explore the connection between the person and home and get people to get a chance to know him through that connection. What do you think was the most interesting thing people will learn if they pick up the uh, Sportsman of the Year with regards to that story angle? Well, to me, it's probably just that, that that's, you know, he is a good old country boy. He's so proud of where he's from and really is one of the most humble, great players that you'll ever see, you know, especially in today's age. We don't often connect humility with athletic greatness, but uh, certainly the case with this guy, I was very impressed with that, and I, I think people who read about him can't help but understand that humility is a big part of who he is. I mean, he's uh, he's a throwback player in a lot of ways, certainly in terms of the workload that he took on in 2014, but okay. also I think in his, his approach to attention and fame. You know, I've said a few times about how how historical, how historically significant his accomplishments in this World Series, and also him pitching in the World Series in general, not just this time around, uh, has been. But that's silly for me to try to put it in perspective because I have Tom Verducci on the line. When you think about trying to put his accomplishments in this World Series and as a pitcher in the World Series in general, or in the Major League Baseball playoffs in general, into perspective, how, how do you try to sort that out? Well, in simplest terms, I would put it this way, that what he did in October of 2014 is part of the oral history of the game. In other words, you don't need a research book. You don't need to go to the Internet to find out exactly what he did. When you do that, it's impressive enough. I mean, 52 and two-thirds innings, four wins, two shutouts, a save, a 1.03 ERA. No one's ever had an October like that. Um But you don't need to look up all those numbers. You just know when you think of the year 2014, especially October, you think of Madison Bumgarner. I mean, it's that simple. It's like, you know, 1905 and Christy Matthews since, like 1965 and Sandy Koufax. Um, You know, for years, I'm not talking just five years or ten years, but, you know, for the next hundred years and beyond, the way we still do today with Matthewson and the old Giants, uh, you'll connect Madison Bumgarner to 2014. And, yeah, the Giants had a great team, and three world championships in five years is is just unbelievable in today's game, especially with all the rounds of playoffs. But what really stays and what people, when they talk to their kids and grandkids about, they just talk about this guy Bumgarner, especially coming out of the bullpen on two days of rest of Game 7 and, you know, throwing the, the most things ever in a World Series save. I mean, that's... Again, you don't need to know the numbers. You just know that nobody ever pitched in October like this guy did in 2014. The sportscaster here with Tom Verducci is third time on the on the program. Really proud of that. 
Uh, his current uh, Sportsman of the Year feature on Madison Bumgarner is the uh, the double issue cover on the, uh, I guess, last SI of 2014. Uh, a few more things I want to squeeze in real quick before we have to let him go. Uh, you know, for his almost every World Series that I've watched in my life has been Buck and McCarver. Not quite all of them. Because I think the first one I remember watching was the last Royals one. So not all of them, but almost all of them. Certainly all of them in the uh, in the uh, more detailed memory portion of my life. But uh, this was different. It was a new year, a, thir- a three-man booth as uh, McCarver retired at the end of last year's. And how do you think it? How do you think it went? Well, just for me personally, it was a blast. It was a lot of fun. I think, you know, in any any walk of life, and especially in sports, people tend to compare what previously came. Uh, in other words, you know, a team makes some changes, they ask, how are we better, how are we worse? Um, you know, whoever replaces John Lester in Boston gets compared to John Lester. And it's just the nature of life that you go back to what you previously were used to in the case of, Joe Buck and Tim McCarver, they were fantastic and such a familiar part of baseball. I remember, you know, a few years ago doing a series for MLB Network with Bob Costas on the greatest games, the 20 greatest games. Yeah. And, of course, of doing that piece and, and, and or series and researching it, went back and looked at a lot of the original broadcasts and, you know, listening time and time again. It was Joe McCarver or Joe Buck and Tim McCarver and they were the soundtrack of baseball in the biggest moments. So, you know, in terms of the three-man booth this year, being compared to that, I mean, being compared to one of the all-time great booths. So uh, I just like to say, rather than compare, to say that what we did is entirely different. You know, a three-man booth, any broadcaster will tell you, is very different from a two-man booth. And I, and I think, you know, just judging it on its own merits, I thought it was fresh and interesting on that perspective alone. It's not often you get, uh, especially in baseball, a three-man booth together, and I thought it worked really well because of the chemistry among the three of us. Let's face it, that's the only way. You're going to have three voices in a booth, and including one or two down in the field with Ken Rosendahl, Aaron Andrews. Um, you really have to have chemistry between the people for it to work. I mean, you want to feel like when you're watching the game, you're hanging out with some buddies watching the game and you know hopefully we got there i just know among the three of us the chemistry i felt was really good uh and only will get better going forward did you think having a three-man booth took a little bit of the pressure off had it been maybe just you and buck or reynolds and buck or anyone else in buck that there would have been a little bit more pressure of as you can specifically say this is the guy replacing the guy which everyone says in sports you don't want to be um, I don't know about that because, you know, you know what is pressure anyway? It's such an intangible thing that, you know, I don't know how you measure it. It's like measuring air. Um, you know, there's no really way to measure whether there's more or less, but um, I will say I think it's more difficult just technically to do a three-man booth because um, you just have well, more people, <laughs> to be honest with you, who have to, who have very good points to make and calls to make, and knowing how to divide up the time, um, it's actually easier in a two-man booth than a three-man booth. So just technically speaking, it's a little harder 
there's just more plates being spun. But um, uh, I think the upside of it also is probably greater because when it works, it sounds really, really good. All right, last thing. Uh, Chris, Chris Stone is making his first ever appearance on the show today. And John Wertheim has been on about 13 times. and He's a great friend and advocate for the show. And uh, both of those guys are essentially uh, put into position by those that be a time to lead the magazine into into the the multimedia uh, age that is magazines now. It's no longer good enough to just be this beautiful thing that comes in the mail and uh, has pages and words. You need more than that. You need all of these other things that Chris and, and John, I think, are doing a great job of developing. As someone who works there as a writer and one of the most important writers there, how do you think things are going under their leadership? How how optimistic are you about Sports Illustrated as we move forward every year and magazines, unfortunately, maybe become less relevant in each of those years? Uh, you know, I'm still really bullish on the magazine that, you know, you have to be optimistic because... Uh, the goals and the mission of the magazine remain very, very high. That you know, uh, the consistently great quality of journalism and photography to me is still unmatched. And you're right; it's a very different, changing landscape in terms of uh, media competition, and uh, even in terms of demand from uh, consumers because they get their their news and stories and information in so many different ways and so many different platforms that it is harder to stand on. Uh, that being said, though, if you start from a position of aiming for the absolute highest quality, um, you know, there's always a place for that. To me, you know, it's still about storytelling and informing people. I mean, that's been true since, you know, the cavemen went out and, and killed an animal and came back and drew pictures of it on the wall of the cave. Um, you wanted to tell a story, and people were interested in hearing a good story. And the way we tell stories has changed a lot over the years, and even in the last 10 to 20 years, it's changed a lot. But the demand for great stories, well told, that hasn't changed at all. And I think as long as that remains the mission of the magazine, and I believe that it does, that it is, um, then the magazine will not just continue to be relevant, but continue to thrive. Do they beg to get you on Twitter? I guess so. <laughs> what, people don't have enough of me already? <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, SL Price and I actually had a really spirited debate about this a few times, one we don't have enough time for right now. But And when he eventually came around, I emailed him and said, you know, thank you for finally listening to me. And he kind of joked. We, we joked about that, and he said, well, you know, there was more to it than you, you know, and which obviously I knew we were kidding around. But uh, I think you're like the most important writer left that's not there, and I have to imagine that. that and I'll ask uh, uh, Mr. Stone about this. I, I got to imagine they beg you. I, 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 any chance we find you there? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. I mean, I'm not a holdout for any kind of uh, intractable reason. <laughs> right, but, right. Um, yeah, no, I didn't mean that. Yeah, yeah. Someday. All right, well, we'll look forward to that. Uh, in the meantime, you can find Mr. Verducci, obviously, on SI.com. And uh, an, an incredible uh, piece on Madison Bumgarner. And congratulations on a great year, the World Series, uh, being there as someone who loves baseball. It's got to be got to be amazing, and, and the piece is great, and I still love the magazine. And uh, Thank you very much for this. I appreciate it. Hope we didn't take too much time. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Talk to you soon. You got it. 
All right, we want to thank Tom Verducci for being on the podcast again. Third time in for Mr. Verducci. A lot of cool stuff there. I uh, really love doing that spot again. We recorded that uh, before Christmas time, uh, so we didn't get to do any Baseball Hall of Fame. Uh, it's actually Wednesday, which is the day after Tuesday, which was the day that Don and I recorded all stu- all of our stuff. And we said that there might be some interviews beyond Verducci and Wolken. That's not true. That's all we have today. Uh, there'll be more next week. As for the book club, uh, we kind of got to get organized. We got three books that we're kind of working on, and we got to see where we're at with them. Uh, one is The Death of WCW, the 10th anniversary edition by R.D. Reynolds and Brian Alvarez. I do want to have one of those guys on to talk about that and maybe talk a little bit about wrestling in 2014. So I'm going to reach out to someone, and hopefully maybe we can have one of them on next week. Uh, also, from the same publisher, they turned me on to a book called uh, Hockey Card Stories by Ken Reed, who's actually from Sportsnet uh, in Canada. And he might be a good guy to get on and talk World Junior Hockey with. Uh, and see what he what he saw in Toronto and Montreal uh, the last week and a half or so as Canada finally won gold again, as we mentioned in three things. And then the big one, the one that I'm working really hard on, is Al Michaels, You Can't Make This Up, Miracles, Memories, and the Perfect Marriage of Sports and Television. And I'm going to do everything I can uh, to get an interview with him either before he calls another Super Bowl this year or just after. Uh, so those are the books we're working on, and uh, we're going to get organized with that. Uh, and then we're going to uh, to restart with some new books here in 2015. All right. So you just heard Verducci. We're going to take a break. We're going to come back with Dan Wolken, and then we'll end the show with uh, with some pick four. Our next guest is from Hot Springs, Arkansas, and is a graduate of Vanderbilt University. He covers college football for USA Today and has made at least one appearance on each season of the Sportscasters. We're excited. His seventh appearance is on the first episode of Season 5, A Warm. Welcome to our friend, Dan Wolken. What's up, Dan? How's it going? Good. How you doing, bud? Not too bad, not too bad. Just um, trying to get a few things done here in this uh, space between the semifinals and the championship game. It's sort of a new new territory for uh, the people who cover college football. What do you think about the space between the two? Is it uh, is it is, is it reasonably length? Well, uh, yeah. I mean, I think you sort of have to give it a little bit of room to breathe after the bowl games. Let teams get ready. You know, there's two weeks in between the NFC and AFC championships, the Super Bowl. Here you've got about 11 or 12 days, and it can be a little bit longer, a little bit shorter, depending on how the calendar falls, because it's always got to be on a Monday night. But uh, I think the rhythm of it makes sense. It's just different, very different to uh, have you know your big bowl games and then basically have another one. It's different for the teams, for the coaches, for the media, for Everybody, but we'll get used to it. Yeah, and, you know, I knew it would be huge, but I don't know if I thought I'd wake up to read that the games were the number one and two rated shows in the history of cable television. I don't know if I if I knew it would be that huge. You? Uh, 
Um, I don't know that I really thought about it in those terms, but I knew that the interest would be significant, especially when you have the big brand name programs involved like they did this year. Uh, pretty hard to get more interesting matchups, uh, at least from a television perspective, than the two Heisman Trophy winning quarterbacks going head-to-head in one game. And then Nick Saban and Urban Meyer, who have a rivalry that goes back you know, probably almost 10 years now um, in the other game, that just sort of writes itself as a, as a big story. And I think people were intrigued when you looked at uh, the fact that this playoff thing had been percolating for years and there had been all this build-up to it and talk about it and it was finally here. I wasn't particularly surprised that it, it drew major ratings. I, I I think that totally makes sense. You mentioned kind of the dream set of programs, and there's been a cynicism out there that maybe that's why uh, Ohio State made it over TCU, that that was a factor in the committee's decision. Do you buy into that cynicism at all, or is it just what I said, cynicism? Well, I don't know that I would call it cynicism necessarily. I, I just sort of always believed that if it came down to a close call, and it usually almost always is going to be a close call for that last spot, uh, then brand bias would probably win out uh, because that's just sort of part of the reality that goes along with college football. And whenever you're talking about human beings in a, in a room, uh, basically making a choice between two very evenly matched teams, you know, the team that's got the better brand name, I think just, it's not anybody's fault. It's not. It's not calculated or by design or anything like that. I just think it just happens that they get the benefit of the doubt more often uh, because you're used to seeing Ohio State there, and you're not used to seeing Euro Baylor. So, you know. But again, I I think all those teams are capable of of, of winning. I mean, it's not. I, I don't look at it and say, okay, TCU got hosed um it was a close call and you know ohio state i I thought throughout the season if you watch them they very much looked like a team that could do this the only complicating factor for them was the fact that their quarterback got hurt but when you win the big 10 championship game 59 nothing with your third quarterback right i think that was the the impression that they needed to leave to get the committee to buy into them, and they did, and obviously the committee looks pretty smart about it today. Do you think that the success of this, and maybe it doesn't matter either way, do you think we're headed to this expanding? Or do you think that they're going to settle into four and and we're going to be here for a long time? Or do you think that four was always a bridge to what they really want an 18 playoff? No, I mean, if they really wanted eight, then they could have done eight right at the very beginning. Um, I don't think this was a bridge. I think we will be here for the foreseeable future. I, I don't know what that means. I don't think it'll be any less than six years. Six years is a fairly long time. Yeah. Um, after that, who knows? And the reason 
it could change. And the reason why it's hard to make any predictions is because at that point, there's going to be a lot of new blood in that commissioner's room. You know, the, the 10 conference commissioners of the FBS conferences are the ones who put this together. And also uh, the 11th is, is the Notre Dame athletic director. Those, those are the 11 folks who really have control over this postseason, uh, and they can do what they want to do. And over time, those people are going to change because they're all sort of older. You know, they're basically the right at or close to retirement age. Mike Sloss is, is kind of retired this year. Jim Delaney, I don't think he'll be there six more years. John Swafford, I don't think he'll be there six more years. So as, as those people cycle out and new blood comes in, I think you'll have different perspectives. I think you'll have um, less of a uh, marriage emotionally to the bowl system, and and there may be a philosophy evolution uh, to to change and go to eight, but I don't think the people who are in charge right now want eight um, necessarily. I think we're here for a little while, you know, probably at least six to eight years. Let's talk a little bit about the games. Uh, the first one, Oregon and uh, and Florida State, is a really a really uh, exciting game, and then it just kind of felt like. Florida State fell apart and just could not not turn the ball over. It seemed like every time they touched it, they were turning it over, and Oregon was right there, being the quality team they are, they were and are. Uh, to each time that ball hit the ground, and and they took it over, they they cashed that in. They took advantage of every every crack that Ohio State offered them, or excuse me, Florida State. Uh, did we see Florida State fall apart, or did we see Oregon just? Impose their will, and uh, there was just nothing Florida State could do, or a combination of both. Well, I think that Oregon, the way they play, and as good as they are, they put a lot of pressure on on the teams they play. You know, and and Florida State had some opportunities early in the game to relieve that pressure a little bit, and they just didn't take advantage. They got inside the 10-yard line twice pretty early in the game and came away with three points. So when you do that, it puts you in a position where you can't make a whole lot of mistakes. Uh, they, they just got to that second half, and there wasn't much margin for error. And that, that accumulation of game pressure that Oregon puts on you just eventually catches up, you know, where you have to score. Okay, you score, and then you can't stop them, they score. But the next time you get the ball, you've got to score. That that adds up. It takes a toll. It did on Florida State, and it only took a couple, you know, bad uh, bad plays to get themselves in the, in a situation that they just couldn't get out of. So, um, you know, I think there was a little bit of implosion on Florida State's part, but I, I have to give most of the credit to Oregon and just sort of the way that they're able to um, you know, dictate how the game flowed from pretty much the first quarter on. You know, I want to ask you about Oregon's coach. When when they lost uh, Chip Kelly to the NFL, I think there might have been a little bit of perception that Oregon football lost something they might not be able to replace. And obviously they haven't really missed a beat. They've had two incredibly successful seasons since Chip Kelly left. Are we watching a coach who's benefiting from Chip Kelly's players and systems in place? And, are, and is this something that 
Oregon needs to worry about going forward? Or did they really hire a guy from within the program who was the perfect person to step in and just continue uh, what had been built there? Well, it remains to be seen long term how, how it's going to look, you know, after Marcus Mariota and uh, some of these players leave. And, and I think everyone sort of agrees that the window of opportunity for Oregon with this current group is, is closing. Uh, now, that doesn't mean it can't open again down the road, but it, I think it was important within their organization to, to make a run at it this year because, you know, you do lose Marcus Mariota and, and some other very important pieces. Uh, I was one of those who believed that that they would have a hard time getting back with Helfrich to a championship position because I do have a, a great amount of uh, regard for Chip Kelly and what he brings to the table. Um, but Helfrich has gone about it in a smart way. He's not changed a whole lot of stuff. Uh, he obviously has the respect of, of that team, which is very important. I was, you know, I had some doubts last year after they lost to Stanford, and then they came back and sort of laid another egg against Arizona. I, I wondered whether they would uh, be able to get back to the truly elite level, but you have to give them credit this year. They, and I think they're probably in good position to win it, and there's no question people sort of look at it, and, and Helfrich is, is, is a very under- um, appreciated, underpublicized guy for someone who might win a national championship. It's a unique situation, um, maybe a little bit like Larry Coker, a little bit like Larry Coker in Miami, um, where you sort of inherited a, right. a, you know, a Lamborghini. But um, he's done a very good job. Uh, one last thing about this game, and I want to ask you about the other one, and then ultimately the national championship game. Uh, Florida State is another team now that's going to have to move into a new era. Obviously, Winston's going to move on uh, and go to the NFL. What kind of uh, nucleus is in place beyond Winston? What, was it, Did a door shut on Florida State uh, last weekend, or is this still a team that you think uh, will be contending for the playoffs in the next few years? Well, they're definitely going to be different moving forward. have to be, because they're just going to be so much uh, they'll still be very talented. The way they've been recruiting the last few years, the way they're recruiting this year, they're set up to, to be a contender. I don't know that they will be next year necessarily. I think some things are going to have to you know, break the right way for them. You know, the schedule's got to fall behind, all those things. But but I think, they're, I think Florida State is sort of now at the point where a bad year for them is going to be, you know, 9-3. and three. Um, you know, that's, that's sort of the floor for what their program is going to be moving forward, given the talent they have and being in the ACC. Pretty good position to be in. I, I would say pretty well set up to you know, make another playoff appearance in the next three years. The sportscasts are here with their friend Dan Wolken. He's at Dan Wolken on Twitter and covers college football for the USA Today. I got to be honest, Dan, 21-6, to 6, there was a huge part of me saying that's uh, – uh, is there any movies we want to watch? Because uh, this thing's done. I, I was, uh, I was shocked that uh, that Ohio State not only was able to erase that deficit, but uh, but really almost cruise in the second half. Um, I know it was close, and uh, 
They had to make some plays there in the end, but it never felt like Alabama was really, uh, really that close to winning once uh, once Ohio State kind of uh, kind of built that lead up, and and that's as surprising thing as I've seen in a in a in a bowl game in a long time. Well, it, it surprised me too, mostly because Alabama had played so well late in the season. Uh, they really seemed like a team that that was uh, figuring out offensively how to be successful. Uh, defensively, had had tightened up their pass defense, and you know, you knew their front seven was a monster. Um, but they got exposed. Uh, they didn't. You know, Ohio State has great athletes on the perimeter. Urban is is recruited and built a front seven defensively that I think would stack up well, you know, to any in the SEC. That was a huge priority for him coming in. So it's not like Ohio State didn't have the pieces. I think the thing that was just surprising was was the quarterback play. I mean, they got a better game out of Cardell Jones than Alabama got out of Blake Sims, and so uh, that's a huge difference in the game. Also, the play calling from Alabama was maybe a little suspect at, at some point. Uh, but, hey, I mean, Ohio State played great. They, they sort of dominated the game. I didn't see it coming. Um, but, you know, given how I looked at Ohio State before the J.T. Barrett injury, if you just sort of put Barrett in their quarterback, it wouldn't have surprised me really at all. So, um, you know, they're here, and, I, you know, I think they have a, they have a fighting chance. Um it's certainly going to be another difficult game for them, but uh, you know they, they've they've answered a lot of questions. Yeah, you know it's unbelievable to me. Uh, Urban Meyer obviously uh, is worth worth the money, and you know I, I think I read in Sports Illustrated that it was pretty close uh, after uh, the the injury to Braxton Miller on which way they would go, Barrett. Um, or or the, or the quarterback who played last week, and uh, ultimately they went with Barrett. Uh, but still, I mean, to think that you have a team that's three quarterbacks deep uh, and able to have the third guy in that depth chart beat the number one team in the country uh, in the second game he played all season, I mean, that's got to be an incredible feather in the cap of Urban Meyer and the staff and the way they prepare the players, right? Uh, yeah, it's a huge uh, coaching achievement, no question. Now, I will say, labeling him a third-string quarterback is a little bit unfair in the sense that, you know, when you're a third-string quarterback, typically you're not getting real reps in practice. You're getting scout team, maybe. Right. Um, at Ohio State, he was getting second-team reps this year, probably going against the first-team defense quite a bit. So it's not like he played. So it's not like he was just sort of sitting over there twiddling his thumbs during practice. Um, they were getting him ready all season in case he needed to play. Uh, but there's no question it's it's a huge coaching achievement. It's a you know when you look at just the fact that they had that much talent on the roster, it's pretty impressive. So uh, you know you gotta tip your cap to Urban Meyer and, and Tom Herman, the offensive coordinator. They they've done a hell of a job. Yeah, and. Uh... The running back, uh, Elliot, that's two straight games with over 200 yards. Uh, and, and maybe we can use that to transition into what we have now, which is uh, Ohio State 
uh, versus Oregon for the national championship. How important is Elliott going to be to to keep the pressure off of the quote unquote third string quarterback and to keep the offense uh, in the rhythm that it's been in since uh, since JT Barrett went out? Well, there's no question that I think anytime you play Oregon, it helps if you can run the ball because it just you know it really helps your defense out, keeps the ball out of the hands of Marcus Mariota. Maybe, you know, it can make a difference even if you are able to control the clock just one more possession per game um, when you're playing a guy that dangerous. So there's no question if they can run the ball more effectively than Oregon can, um, you know, that's an advantage going into the game. I I still think that that matters, even in this era of up-tempo college football. So Ezekiel Elliott's a stud, and... There's no question that when you're talking about trying to protect a, a guy who's maybe not got the experience at quarterback, uh, that every little bit helps. And, you know, Oregon's defense thrives on turnovers. That's what they've done all year long. Um, and so Elliott's going to have to not fumble. Uh, you know, the, the less you expose the, your guy to interceptions, I think all those things impact Oregon's defense, and uh, uh, yeah, Elliott's going to be a huge key in this game. Well, let me ask you this. If we're talking uh, next Tuesday, and Ohio State is the national championship, what most likely is going to be the thing we're going to be talking about? What what happened in that game uh, if Ohio State well, is the winner? I mean, the thing is, in college football, it's always the coaches are the biggest story. Mm-hmm. And, I think, and I think if Urban wins, and it's his third national title, and he's sort of on that Saban track where he's, he's done it at two different schools, then it really does become, you know, uh, uh, a, a sort of competition between Meyer and Saban as, as, as his, the best coach in the game. Um, you know, I don't know, I don't know, you know, what's going to happen in the game. It's, that's sort of a crystal ball thing, and I'm not a coach, and I don't really... I, hard for me to sort of project, uh, but I think when you look at Ohio State, what they've got coming back next year, I mean, they're really, they're sort of here a year early, to be honest with you. Yeah, everybody kind um, of said that, too. You know, so if they win it, uh, with everything they've got coming back, I, I think it really does, I think the narrative sort of shifts and, and becomes about, well, how much can Urban win, can he catch Saban, can he surpass Saban? And it becomes that sort of, um, uh, you know, rivalry that way makes it very, very interesting. Uh, well, what do you think? Well, what what do you expect to happen on uh, Monday? Give us a little prediction, and uh, more than just who's going to win, but uh, why? Well, I think Oregon wins. I think they probably win by ten or, or so. Um, I just sort of like the way they approach uh, what they're doing. This team seems to be much more physical than other Oregon teams. I think um, you see them run through tackles. Uh, you know, they tackle in space well defensively. I think they do more of the dirty work that a team like Ohio State is going to stop you. They're going to punish you. They're going to make, make it hard for you to get yards and get plays. Uh, but I just think this Oregon team seems to have the mentality to to deal with that. Uh, and obviously Mariota 
he's just such a shifty, um, slippery guy. I think he'll be very, very hard for Ohio State to get on the ground. And I, it just sort of feels like Oregon's here to me. You know, I know that uh, there's some people, uh, TCU fans, are upset and, and maybe maybe justifiably so, maybe not. But when I think about it, uh, the BCS National Championship game this year absolutely would have been Florida State versus Alabama probably, right? So, uh, Oh, yeah. No yeah. yeah, so given what we've uh, seen happen here, and uh, we we uh, we got a great a great game to watch on Monday, and and everyone's excited, and the ratings have been been incredible. Uh, it, I think uh, people who wrote people like Jeff Passer, who's a good friend of ours, who who championed for the death of the BCS in a book with uh, uh, with a couple other guys, and everyone else who screamed about the BCS, they got to look at the playoffs as a as a big victory one year in, right? I mean, this was a huge success, not only on the field but off the field and everything else. Am I right about that? Yeah, there's there's nothing that's happened since the beginning of the season that has uh, led anyone that I know to think that the playoff uh, was a negative. Um, the only the only thing you could say is that it maybe took up too much of the focus of the regular season, but but still the regular season was great. I mean, it 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 did sort of become a little bit. Uh, annoying after you know week two when people are saying what does this mean for the playoff right um and there were maybe some conclusions that people jumped to but i think it'll become more natural people will have a better feel for how the process works uh because now we've been through it so all of that's good but in terms of the way it impacted college football generally and the intensity of the regular season and the, the number of games that were relevant in the regular season Plus what we got last weekend, it's all been more positive. Yeah, I think the only thing, I, I, I wish they would wait a little bit longer before they started to release the rankings. Um, but I guess, I mean, whatever. Uh, that's a small thing. And, and, I mean, even if they would have released, uh, waited till two weeks before, it still looked a lot different when they, or looked different. Uh, when they released it, when it was time. Uh, last thing, and I'll let you go, and it's Dan Wolken at Dan Wolken on Twitter and uh, covers uh, college football for the USA Today. I don't know if I ever told you this, Dan, but I was, uh, I was, talking, to, um, I was talking to some listeners who had re- uh, listener who had reached out, a new listener, and uh, whenever someone reaches out and says, hey, I, uh, I like the show, I always say, well, what do, what do you want us to do, uh, to do more? Uh, who do you want to hear? And uh, he said, you know, I'm a huge college football fan, and... Uh, my favorite college football writer is Dan Wolken. Can you have him on? I said, yeah, hey, I can do that for you. I don't know if I ever told you that, but uh, uh, someone out there, huge fan. Well, that's of, extremely nice. Yeah, huge fan of you. That's and, extremely uh, nice. It's probably, someone, it's probably a family member. <laughs> it was your uh, cousin, <laughs> cousin of yours. Uh, last thing I wanted to ask before I let you go. Uh, bowl season in general, um, uh, looking back on it, uh, what, uh, what are you going to take away from, uh, from the bowl season going forward? Um. Uh. What. What. What happened that should be significant, or something that we need to to focus on and remember, either because of what it meant for a player this year or a team this year, or or moving forward. You can take it any way you want, but uh, the other all those other games that were played all month. Uh. What. 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 Uh. What should we remember about them or focus on them? Um, well, I don't know that there were any you know major takeaways for me other than just the fact. That I would say two things. One. There were a lot of comebacks in bowl games from 
some big, big deficits, and it, and it does sort of reinforce the notion that you know anything can happen in college football. Uh, you, you don't see NFL teams come back from from those kinds of deficits because the players are too good, they're pros, uh, the systems, the coaching, all of that stuff. College football is much more a game of mistakes. Um, everybody executes really well in the NFL, not so much in college football. And I think that even though that creates a lot of heartache for, for some people, depending on which side you're on, it creates a lot of entertainment value, and no game is, is ever over. The second thing is the people who say there are too many bowl games and there, and there are those people every year, I just don't buy into that. I don't know why people have a problem. Like, So basically you're upset because some guys get rewarded. Um, you know, you can play at a place like Central Michigan and you get to go to the Bahamas <laughs> for a week and play football. Like, why are people, especially people who don't care about Central Michigan anyway, like, why are they mad about that? Like, what, like is there, what's the problem? What's the inherent problem with the fact that those guys get to have a good time and go play in a bowl game in the Bahamas? Um, if you don't like it, don't watch. I, I, I don't know why people... Uh, don't understand that because for the rest of us who like to watch it's highly entertaining it creates programming on television that's sort of a dead time of year absolutely and yeah. a lot of those games a lot of those games turn out to be really good um, better than the, the quote unquote bigger bowl games anyway so um, those are my two biggest takeaways and that second one gets reinforced every single year because if you hear those people every December talk about too many bowl games and go in and, and I just don't ever see that playing out in, in the reality of it. Dan, we mentioned the Twitter at Dan Wilkin on Twitter. It's usatoday.com and of course the newspaper itself. Anything else you wanted to mention for the listeners? Nope. Just happy holidays to everyone. Be safe in the new year. Thank you so much, bud. All right, I want to thank the guests I know about as I record this, <laughs> Tom Verducci and Dan Wilkin. And that might be it, and that'd be a fine show if it is. But sure. I'm trying to get one more uh, to maybe talk a little bit more NFL football if we can. If not, we'll do it next week. There's always next week. Uh, you can find our previous episodes, all of the episodes from Season 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5 on our website, www.sports-casters.com. Click on Archives. You can find everything there. You can find us on Twitter, at sports underscore casters, uh, which I tweet mostly from. But uh, you can find Don. He's at Don Like Sports on Twitter as well. You can email us at sportscasters at gmail.com. And uh, anything else, plug-wise? Oh, if I've promised you a book and you didn't get it, please remind me. I always, I always try to tell people that I offer a book to that I'm bad at remembering to send them. <laughs> so don't be afraid to bug me about it. And I have this feeling, I had it the other day, that I owe someone a book. Well, I see two of the same books sitting over there. I mean, there's books everywhere. Sure. Yeah. If you want a book, you can email me too because we got some we got to clear out. Yeah. I got a copy of Showtime by Jeff Perlman. All right. If you want that, you can email me. Uh, hockey Cards. You can email me about that. Whatever. If I owe you a book, email me, please, and, and, and accept my apologies that you haven't gotten it yet. All right. Uh, picks. 
Uh, we didn't get to as many as maybe we thought this year, but I ended the regular season with a 19-12-1 record, and Don finished 17-14-1 on the regular season. Uh, oh, speaking of Steve winning, uh, for the second time in three years, I was the champion of the Sportscasters uh, Fantasy Football Listeners League. So I want to congratulate myself on that. <laughs> And the, the year that I didn't win it, I was in the championship and lost by tenths of a point, literally. Wow. So I pretty much dominated that. Uh, good guys play in the league and try hard. Uh, we got two two pieces of dead wood we can replace next year. Uh, some guys who dropped out. And uh, we got to get Don uh, needs to make sure he gets his lineups in. Uh, we'll, we'll give him an excuse on the whole baby thing, maybe. Uh, hurt him towards the end there. but A lot uh, of it is I do a lot of my fantasy-related things. Uh, at work, and that one is blocked for some reason. So maybe we'll have to switch to ESPN. Yeah, we don't have to necessarily do that for me. I could just download the app or something. Yeah, that, that's possible. Yes. All right, let's uh, do these picks real quick and get out of here. All right, uh, I was saying off the air to you that these these Vegas guys are good. Uh, if they're right, there's not going to be a lot of close games this week, but it's, a lot of times when we're making the picks, we always feel real good about one. I don't know if I feel real good about any of these this week. Ravens at Pats. Uh Give me the Patriots minus seven. I, this is going to be one of those things where I underestimate Flacco and Baltimore until they go through and win the Super Bowl again. But uh, I don't know the Patriots. I called the Patriots at New England at the beginning, or the Patriots at the Packers at the beginning of the year. So I'm not going to change that now. So give me New England minus seven. It was only a couple of years ago that the Ravens got to win in New England to go to the Super Bowl. And I don't necessarily think they're going to win this game, but I like the idea of having that touchdown on my side. I think yeah. it'll be close. Uh, so I'll take the points in the Ravens. I do think that the Patriots will win the game, but I think the Ravens are going to give them a run for their money for sure. They're not afraid to play there. No, definitely not. Uh, Panthers at Seahawks. I guess if I had to say I'm confident about one, this would be the one, even though you have to give 10 and a half points as of right now. Uh, I think it's strength on. I think their strengths are similar and their weaknesses are similar, but I think the Seattle strength at defense is stronger than the Panthers' strength at defense, and I think their offense is much better than Carolina's. So I, I don't see how this can go Carolina's way. I know you said you had a listener try to convince you that it's a good matchup for Carolina, but I don't see it. So I guess it's another one that they're going to have to prove me wrong, I guess, because I, I don't see it. I don't see it either, and I think that everything Carolina does well, Seattle does better. And uh, I uh, would be shocked if uh, Seattle doesn't comfortably win this game. So I'll take uh, Seattle minus the 10.5 as well. Cowboys at the Packers. I, like I said, I'm going to stick with the Packers to make it to the Super Bowl, but uh, I just think the Cowboys play them tough. And I think – I was going to say I think your Super Bowl – contender comes out of this game. I think both of these teams are actually better matched up for the Seahawks than Carolina is, but I mean, I guess it's not saying much for a seven and eight team, but I think the Cowboys keep it close. So give me the Cowboys plus the six and a half. Yeah. I think the Cowboys can keep it close too. And I think they could win. Yeah. I think they could win it too. Sure. Uh, I don't know if I think they will, but I think they could. And uh, man, I think if this game was four, I might've still picked the Cowboys. Hmm. I think this is a real close game, and uh, the Packers. I watched the Packers really struggle in Buffalo against a really good Bills defense, and I know that that really has nothing to do with anything except for 
it just it makes me feel like in the back of my mind that the Cowboys can be really competitive in this game. And there's there's something about the Cowboys this year. There's yep. just something about this team. So I'll uh, I'll pick the Cowboys as well. Last game, uh, Colts at the Broncos, maybe the sexiest matchup because of the backstories and everything behind Luck and uh, Manning and all that good stuff. Colts are a seven-point dog in this game. I know they're on the road, but I think the Broncos are beatable. Uh, Peyton's looked human for, I would say, the last half of the season or so. Um, And Andrew Luck just had a phenomenal game. So I think they're going to have a tough time winning it, but I think they can win it, and I'm getting a touchdown. So I'll take it. Do you think the media will mention at all that Manning used to play, <laughs> play for, for, the Colts? for the Colts? Probably not. And that Luck was the quarterback who who took over, took over for Manning? No. I mean, if there's a drinking game that involves that, don't get involved because you'll be in the hospital. They should look into that storyline. That's something to potentially talk about. You took the Colts? Plus a seven, yeah. Yeah. I'm going to take the Broncos. All right. I don't know why. I don't have a good good reason. I don't have a good feel on I don't have a great games, feel on a lot of them, yeah. Except for maybe Seattle, but if that's I such a, a big... Bread. If I had to bet real real life money, yeah. it'd be a small amount. But home teams, by the way, it, their regular season records as at this point, thirty and two. So that's all you got to do. I mean, you go eight no at home, and you just split your road games. You end up twelve and four and in the playoffs, and with home field advantage, probably. So yeah, home teams thirty and two. Mm-hmm.